Amen. Great. Yeah, well, I'm honored and privileged to be able to bring you the next, um, the next installment in our series on 1 Thessalonians. Um, now, we're only four weeks in, in November, and there are five chapters in Thessalonians, so I've got four and five. I'm going to mostly do four. Um, I may skip over into five, depending on how the time's going, but just to confuse you, I'm going to start in chapter three verse 12. So if you've got your Bible, if you want to find 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 12, if you haven't got a Bible and you want to follow along, there's some on the table over there next to the big vine poster, um, which you're very welcome to help yourself to. And if you haven't got a Bible at home and you want to take one home, feel free to take one of those home. They're, they're there for your benefit. Um, yeah. So, um, <coughs> yeah, so I'm carrying on the um, our teaching on Thessalonians. Um, Obviously, it's the book written to the church in Thessalonica. Um, Thessalonica was named after the daughter of Philip of Macedon. It's in the, the region of Macedonia, um, which is in Greece. Greece wasn't always a unified place. There were lots of city-states that fought against each other. And under Philip, and particularly under his son Alexander, Alexander the Great, Macedonia was the the heavyweight, and Philip won, a, he conquered the army of Thessaly, and he was so pleased that when, he, um, when his daughter was born shortly after that, that decisive battle, which I think was called the Battle of Crocus Fields, he named his daughter Thessalonica, which means victory in Thessaly, because he was so proud of what he'd done. It was not a great result for the... Um, for the people of Thessaly, their commanding officer was crucified publicly, and all the soldiers that surrendered were taken out into the sea and drowned. So, you know. But, you know, the amazing thing is that then um, he named his daughter Thessalonica, and then when his daughter got married, her husband established a city, and in her honor, he named that city Thessalonica. And... A few hundred years later, the Apostle Paul comes to that city named after this famous defeat which culminated in a crucifixion. And he tells them about another crucifixion. And he tells them the wonderful news we've been singing about this morning of, of a commander who wasn't like the commander of the armies of Thessaly, who appeared to be defeated who was crucified, but who won a decisive, everlasting victory, like that last song we were singing. You know, it, it really did for me when it, the, the, the lines about heaven looked away. You know, Father God sends his son, and Jesus goes to the cross, and the, the idea that the father just had to look away. He just couldn't bear to see his son in pain. But three days later, three days later, he rises from the grave. And that is the good news that Paul brought to the, to the city of Thessalonica. And he did this most amazing church plant. If you go on church planting courses, I've never done one myself. But, you know, <coughs> if you go on church planting courses. Um, we belong to a movement of churches that's really into planting churches. And the, the received wisdom is that you, 
you, you gather a few people for a while who've got, who God's put an interest in a particular town or an area on their hearts, and you get them together, and for a few weeks or months, they pray about it, and they pray about it, and then maybe one or two of them already live there, or they move into the area, and for a few more months, they, they pray about it, and they plan, and then you have like an, an opening service and everything, and then maybe you start to gather a few more people, probably you put on quite a big ev- social event to get lots of people to come to, and you give out flyers around all the streets. Paul went to Thessalonica. He had three Sundays at a synagogue, or three Saturdays, rather, at a synagogue. We don't know exactly how much longer he had after that, because he was kicked out of the synagogue. But fairly quickly, the Jews in the synagogue were so upset about how well, about the message he brought, which was sacrilege, and about the fact that Many, many people who've been coming along and showing some interest in the synagogue, who were thinking about it but weren't quite sure it was quite for them, suddenly Paul comes along and loads of those people are thinking like, well, we, were in, we knew there was one God, we were interested in one, but you know, this message, this message is a lot better than what they're saying in that synagogue. And the Jews were so upset about that, they got him kicked out. So we don't know. I, I've seen, um, I've read a few commentaries who said that, well, it says in Acts he only had the three Sabbaths, and then it talks about him, you know, a riot being stirred up and people being taken out and beaten. So, but he cannot possibly have established a church that quickly, you know? It must, he must have been there for several months, really, to really get a church going. Maybe six months, maybe even, you know, a year perhaps. But it's just those three. But, you know, I don't know. What I do know is. The Apostle Paul, under the power of the Holy Spirit, God could have done it in three weeks if he wanted to. Yes. <laughs> and almost certainly, this was the quickest of all of Paul's church plans. And the amazing thing was, they did really well. They did really well. You read the le- if you read some of Paul's letters, he's getting really annoyed with the people he's writing to. He's like, you know, you, I came, I taught you this. We went through it and through it and through it and through it and through it. And look what you're doing now. You foolish Galatians. He didn't just pick on the Galatians. He wasn't very keen on the Corinthians either. He got a bit annoyed with them and many other people. But, but this one Thessalonians in particular, it's a really positive, encouraging letter. Paul's writing and saying, I was really worried because actually I was only with you for a few days. And I didn't get much of a chance to teach you anything very much. And so I really thought the chances were that with the fact I was kicked out and there were all these riots and, the, you know, I had to leave because the, one of the leading guys of you who was in the church I was planting, he was taken out, he was beaten up, he was fined massive amounts of money. And, you know, it was to save him, really, and to save you guys the trouble you were getting because I was there, that I had to run away. And so I really thought that with all that opposition, with the really short time I had to teach you and with all the other stuff going on, that probably you might be struggling a bit. And yet, Timothy's come back and he's told me, you're doing amazingly. You're doing better than most of the others. And I'm really, really thrilled about this. And that's what Thessalonians is about. But, obviously, Paul's saying as well, I was only with you for a fairly short period of time. So there's some things I didn't manage to get on to. And, you know, that is really good news for us. <coughs> Because if Paul had been there long enough to teach them everything, he wouldn't have had to written them this letter. And if he hadn't had to write them this letter, we wouldn't have got God's wisdom on these points in the letter. <coughs> so, having got you, hopefully by now you've all got as far as 
1 Thessalonians 3.12. In fact, you've probably forgotten that's where you're heading for because I've gone on too long. But um, So, I, I, may, I will jump about a bit, so you may have to try and keep up with me. But um, Paul writes, May the Lord make your love grow more and more and multiply for each other and for all people so that you will love others as we love you. May your hearts be made strong so that you'll be holy and without fault before our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Then jumping on to chapter 4, verse 2. You know what we told you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God wants you to be holy and to stay away from sexual sins. He wants each of you to learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Don't use your body for sexual sin like the people who do not know God. Then jumping to verse 7. God called us to be holy and doesn't want us to live in sin. So the person who refuses to obey this teaching is disobeying God, not simply human teaching. And God is the one who gives us his Holy Spirit. We do not need to write to you about having love for your Christian family because God has already taught you to love each other. And truly you do love the Christians in all of Macedonia. Brothers and sisters, we now encourage you to love them even more. (coughs) The reason why I started in chapter 3 when I'm supposed to be doing chapters 4 and 5 is that actually I felt that those two verses at the end of chapter 3 actually summarized everything that chapters 4 and 5 are about. He says, he talks about, may your love grow more and more and multiply for each other and for all people. May your hearts be made strong so you'll be holy and without fault. And holy and without fault before God, before our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And that basically summarizes the next two chapters. Chapters 4 and 5 are largely talking about loving one another and people outside the church, being holy, and about Jesus coming back. (coughs) So, why why does Paul talk about being holy, and why does he particularly talk about sexual sin? If you are not familiar with the church particularly what you probably know is that we're not very keen on the whole sex thing <laughs> that's what most if you if you went out, if you went out and you asked most people on the street tell me something about christians about churches probably very quickly they would bring up the subject of sex in one form or another and that being a problem that the church had um and it is true <coughs> that some of the teachings of Christ are countercultural in the culture in which we live in at the moment, and that the area of sexual ethics is probably one of those areas where we are rubbing up against the culture. But actually, it's an area where the Christian church has been rubbing up against the culture from the very beginning, and that's why Paul was writing this to the Thessalonians, because it was an area where... where the teachings of the Bible, the teachings that he was bringing and the teachings that Christians were bringing to the, to the Greek world and to the Roman world were going counterculturally because they were teaching that you should be married before you had sex, that you should stay married for your entire life 
and that during the course of that marriage, you should only have sex with the person to whom you were married. And that was countercultural. <coughs> Paul was teaching throughout the Roman Empire. One of the largest temples in Rome was the Temple to Venus. In fact, they had a, they had a, a kind of sort of catchy soundbite thing that on the top on the front of the Temple of Venus, apparently it said Roma Amor, which is the same word but spelled backwards. I can't remember what the term for that is, but it was a kind of, you know, like, you know, we're Romans and we're about love and sex. It goes together. It's what we are. <coughs> and it was one of the biggest temples in, in Rome and because it was one of the most visited. And it was visited and one of the best ways where you could worship Venus, the goddess of love, in her temple was to have sex. And you did, and it didn't actually matter at all, really, who you were having sex with. It didn't have to be. In fact, sometimes it was considered to be even better if it was with like lots of different people. And just in case, just in case you weren't married or your partner wasn't into that kind of thing, or you know, they weren't around at the time, you didn't have to worry when you turned up at the Temple of Venus. They had plenty of young priestesses who were very happy to oblige in this regard. Because that was what their job was. That's how you worshipped Venus. So, a teaching that you had to stay married to one person for your entire life, and you stayed with them, and you only had sex with them, and you enjoyed it greatly, but that you only did it. That was countercultural. Just as much then as it is now. <coughs> So Paul picks on something where the church is going to be different from the culture it's, it's it within. And he points out how important it is on those difficult areas to stay strong. Because the areas where the church is agreeing with society can be the areas where <coughs> it's least possible to stand out or it's it's easiest to go along and do things, to live your life out, because those are areas where you're not being challenged and where you're not challenging other people. But the church is meant to be a church that puts God first. And, you know, when you are, when you are saved by God, you are, de you are declared righteous at that point. God says, when you, when you accept Jesus, when you say, God from now on, I'm going to put you in charge of my life because I believe that Jesus went to that cross. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that Jesus rose again. And I believe that because of that, everything I've done wrong in my life now or I will ever do can be paid for by that death and overcome by that resurrection. Therefore, I want to commit my life to following you. At that point at which God receives you, he said... Once and for all time, eternally, your name is written down. You are forgiven. You will never be punished for any of your sins in the way you deserve to be. You will never taste hell because of what Jesus has done. But that doesn't mean that at that point, <coughs> you automatically stop doing all the stuff. Jesus' death is big enough to cover the stuff of you afterwards as well. But it does mean that at that point, God wants to change you 
He wants to change your attitude. He wants to change your behavior. He wants to change what you think, what you say, what you do. He wants to change everything about you. And if you have said, Lord, you are now in charge of my life. I want to give you the right to tell me what to do. Then you honor that by doing that, by letting him tell you what to do. And by doing that means by with his allowing him to help you to behave the way he wants you to, to lead you and to guide you. You can't do it by yourself for a lot of these. And yeah, there might be some things you can change, but there will be things in your life when you become a Christian that God is not happy with, that he needs you to change, and which you might want to change, but you really struggle to change. So you it's about allowing the Holy Spirit to do it. But it is about you allowing the Holy Spirit to do it. It's about you not fighting against the Holy Spirit. And, you know, why? some of these things are hard. Some of these things mean giving up things that you enjoyed. Some of them might mean doing things you don't really enjoy. But if, you, if you've been forgiven by God, if you trust God, if you believe that he has got your best interests at heart, why would you not be wanting to listen to him, to follow him, to let him change you from the inside out? If you are truly saved, then you will want to live a lifestyle that pleases God because you are so grateful to God. You will want to be holy, to live like Jesus did, because that's how you give pleasure to your Father. And that that surely is what you want to do. And if you're not, if you're not wanting to please God, then I, were you really repentant in the first place? You know? Because true repentance involves a desire to leave sin behind. If you, you don't want to be, you know, <coughs> I know I've used this, this analogy before, but, you know, um, if you are a bride on your wedding day in your beautiful white dress, you are not going to want to stop the car, pop up the bonnet, and start fiddling about underneath with all the oil and the dirt and stuff. And it's when, so if you receive righteousness, if you have the opportunity, if you are declared righteous, you're made righteous in God, why do you want to tinker around with the dirty stuff again, you know? And we, you know... I'm not condemning anybody who has ongoing struggles. We all have ongoing. I have ongoing struggles of my own, believe me. I'm not standing here and saying I've got it all sorted out. But, you know, true repentance is about trying to be holy because and letting God change you from the inside out so that your outer life is the proof of the inner change because that is what will communicate with people as well. If you can, if people see that you have been changed by this, uh, particularly if they can see it's a change that comes from the inside out, not from the outside in, then that will impact on them. Some people will be really annoyed by it, but some people will be really impressed by it and want to know more and want to receive it for themselves. So that was that was the first point that <coughs> Paul talks about holiness and the importance of holiness and being, becoming holy so that you can demonstrate to the world what Christ has done in you. <coughs> the second point he talks about is about loving people. I was, um, I had a day uh, two or three weeks ago when I was um, 
I started off in the morning, I was jogging around the block and I had, I had some music on and meatloafs, two out of three, eight bad, eight came on. And I got back home and I thought I was quite good. Like, that was the song out of all the ones I've been listening to that kind of stood out for me. So I, I, put, I put some meatloaf on on YouTube and, it got, and straight away, the first song that came on without me choosing it, which is I just said meatloaf, anything by meatloaf, two out of three, eight bad came on. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, fair enough, that was quite lucky. You know, and then... In the afternoon, I just randomly put the radio on, and, and that same song came on again. First time, and, I, and I, a couple of days later, I was thinking, "That's a bit odd, isn't it?" And you know, I'm, as a Christian, I believe that God is active in my life. And when odd things like that happen to me, sometimes—and I did on this occasion because sometimes I don't always get it right—but I thought, "Okay, I'm going to pray about this." I'm say, Lord, just what were you saying about this? Yeah. And I just thought about the chorus. <laughs> and he says, I love you. Sorry, no. I want you. I need you. But there ain't no way I'm ever going to love you. But don't be sad. Two out of three ain't bad. And yeah, I'm glad I got to go laugh. Because actually when I thought about it, that, that's ironic. And it's meant to be ironic. You know, I'm sure it's, it's entirely meant to be ironic. But yeah. A relationship where someone says, well, you know, I want you and I need you, but I'm never going to love you. What kind of relationship is that? Would you really want to? And, and, but believe me, I'm sure there are thousands, if not millions of people who are in relationships like that. They're in relationships where they know that they're desired, but they're not loved. There are probably lots of people who are actually in relationships where they think that that's the best you can get. They don't even realize that you can get three out of three in a relationship. Yeah? And that thing, you know, that's, that's sad, you know? And I think God said to me, that's, <coughs> that's why Paul in this letter is saying, one thing that's going to make you stand out, Thessalonian church, one thing you're doing well, but you need to keep doing and you keep doing better, is you need to be loving each other. And you need to be loving the other people around you. Not just, it's not just that you want people. Because, you know, as a church, I'm really glad that you're all here. I would love to see more people here. I really want to have lots of people here on a Sunday morning. I want to have lots of people in our church. It's not just that we need people, because it's great. We've got some fantastic guys over there doing the PA at the moment. Other guys have come in. They've set all this stuff up. They've moved things around. They've lifted heavy boxes, and they're going to do more lifting and carrying when you're all gone. There are people who've set up the refreshments. You know, it's really good that it was one of the biggest challenges we faced when we moved from the previous building we were in, which was a church building with all the facilities and things there, moving to here is that previously on a Sunday morning a lot of the stuff we needed was already set up we could just we couldn't we couldn't just walk in you know people still had to come in and do a lot of preparation but it was a whole other level of preparation we needed being here to set things up and to clear things down and you know we were concerned we wouldn't have enough people on all the rotors because we're not a big church but bless you all you know, we are meeting all our rotors. It is all working. And it is very hard for some of you. Some of you are giving a lot. 
and I know that, and I bless you for it. So, you know, we want lots of people. We need lots of people. But the challenge is we have got to love people. We've got to love each other. That means we've got to go the extra mile for each other. That means we've got to care about each other. That means we've got to, we've got to notice when people aren't here and pick up the phone and say, oh, are you okay? And not just do it because we want to f- make sure that all the seats are filled. And I'm glad some people are like shaking their heads and looking at me quizzically like, well, never, that would never be my motivation. But, you know, but that's great. That's really good. That's not your motivation. It should be because you actually really care. <coughs> and then if the person says, actually, I wasn't there this week because I'm not feeling very well, then you offer to pray for them and you go and help or say, well, yeah, can I bring you a meal? Can I do, you know, do you need someone to go and do your shopping? Or if they say, well, actually, I wasn't there because, you know, my brother's very sick, then you can come alongside them for that. Or it might be, they just say, I wasn't very... I wasn't there because um, I forgot to set my alarm clock. And you can say, would you like me to buy you a new alarm clock? <laughs> <coughs> or come and knock on your door at 9 o'clock in the morning just to make sure you, you're there. But, but, you know, we have to love each other. And it's not just, yeah, we are to love each other within this church and with all the people that are in it. Whoever they, whatever those people might look like, the people that aren't in it yet, but they're going to be in it, we are to love them. But actually... We've not only got to love the people in, within the church, we've got to love the people that are out there and not in the church. And we haven't got, and that's not just because we want them to come and join us. It's not just because we need them because we, we're going to have, we're a bit tight on the rotors and things at the moment and actually, you know, the offering is okay, but we could do so much more if we had something. So if we could just get a couple of those nice guys over on Sandbanks to come along and just put their hands in their pockets. I, I, I'm not a trustee anymore. I can make jokes like that. But I used to be a trustee. And, you know, I thought I could. <laughs> um, but we do it because we love them. And we love them not because we necessarily want them to come and join our church. We love them because we love them. Because they're people made in the image of God and God loves them, and if God loves them, then we've got to love them. And that sometimes is going to be dirty and messy, because they may not respond to our love the way we'd like them to. It may be that they are going <coughs> to dump a whole lot of need on us, perhaps, and we meet it, and we, we help them out, and we surprise them with food, we look after their kids, we paint their houses, we do... You, this, that, and the other. We drive them all over the place for six months, and then they disappear off and never see us again and never even say thank you. And, you know, and, and that can be hard. But we love them because we love them, and we do it because we love them. We're not trying to attract. We're not loving them to try and attract them. We're loving them because we love them and we hope that our love for them will be attractive to them and that we can tell them about the one who loves them more than we do and who's done far more for them than we will ever be able to do and who wants them to receive his love and his forgiveness and his freedom and to change their lives like he's changed our lives.
And then finally, Paul talks about the great hope that keeps us going. Because the Thessalonians were a persecuted church, like all the churches for at the time. And so he, he says in chapter 4, 13, Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about those Christians who have died, so you will not be sad as others who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and he rose again. So because of him, God will raise those who have died. What we tell you now is the Lord's own message. We who are living, when the Lord comes again, will not go before those who have already died. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And those who have died, believing in Christ, will rise first. After that, those who are still alive will be gathered up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. And then he goes on to, um, in chapter 5, to talk about more about it. Um, and he talks more in 2 Thessalonians as well, because obviously he hadn't quite understood it on the first letter. So I'm, I'm not going to go into too much detail on that, because I realize I've been talking for quite a long time. But um, just to say that, you know, hope is what keeps your head up and the Thessalonians, they were doing a really good job, but they were starting to panic a bit because, you know, part of Paul's teaching must have been when he came along, you know, that, yeah, things are going to be tough, but don't worry because Jesus is coming back and, and everything's going to be okay and we're all going to meet Jesus and it's going to be fantastic when he establishes his rule and reign on the earth. And then people in Thessalonica had started getting sick. People in the church had obviously died and they were and the one people that were left were starting to panic a bit and think, well, hang on a minute, you know, Jesus is meant to be coming back and now these people have died. You know, ha have they missed the boat? You know, is, is, has something happened? We haven't noticed it? Or, um, you know, has Christ come again? Or, or did we misunderstand? You know, because they're, they're dead now. They've missed it. And they had missed That was their misunderstanding. And so Paul is saying, no, don't worry we don't know exactly how long it's going to be before Christ comes back. Some of you may well die first, but don't worry. It doesn't mean you've missed the boat. Jesus is still coming back. And believe me, when he does, you're not going to miss it. You're not going to mistake it. You know, it's quite it's clear, it's clear in 2 Thessalonians that actually there were people coming along saying, oh, no, no, no. Um, Jesus has already come, you just haven't noticed yet. And Paul makes very clear, you are going to notice. I've been listening this week to a podcast about um, David Koresh and the Branch Davidian and Waco and what happened there. And, and you know, and it's stunning. I mean, it's horrifying, but it's stunning to hear some of the survivors talking and saying, no, we believe that David Koresh was Jesus and the fact that he died, but, you know, He's going to come back again one day. And, you know, he was, he was the second coming of Christ. And, and nobody apart from, you know, 74 of us in, in the middle of a desert in Texas noticed that Christ would come again. Believe me, read the Bible. It's not going to be like that. You're going to notice it when Christ comes back. You're going to know, and, you know, Paul teaches here, you're going to notice it because a heck of a lot of graves are going to start busting open. I personally have this, this view, I... I, this is me. This is not the scriptures. This is not. not I just think it's going to be like the, like the world's 
biggest fireworks party. You know, you're, you're going to want to be standing next to a church because suddenly there's going to be all these eruptions and these bodies going up, 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 and the gravestones are going to be bursting out all over the place. <coughs> and then, and then, once all the dead people have gone up, all the Christians that are alive are going to be like shooting up into the sky. Their bodies are going to be transformed from their earthly bodies into their heavenly bodies as they make their way up because you can't fly at the moment. But, you know, but you'll be able to when you go to meet Christ in the air, you know. And then we're coming straight back again. You know, the picture is, um, I was thinking about, you know, imagine that the queen flew in. She was, was going to come and visit us on a Sunday morning or visit pool even. And she flew into the airport, you know. She wouldn't just fly into the airport and go through check-in and, and just kind of drive up here and, and nobody would really notice or anything. No. People would be out at the airport to meet her. There'd be people lining the streets down the Wessex Way or wherever, you know, watching for a car and waving. Through, and, you know, that's the picture that Paul is painting. When Christ comes back again, we're going to get to meet him first before everybody else. And we're going to be lining the streets and we're going to be coming in with him and waving because we're going to be in the cavalcade that's coming, you know. That's what Paul's talking about. And then Christ will establish his rule and his reign on the earth. And then there will be judgment. Then there will be judgment. He will separate the wheat from the chaff, it talks about. He'll separate the people who are going to be there with him, to rule and reign with him throughout eternity in a perfect earth from the people that are going to go and leave his presence and go to a place that the gospel writers talk about as a place of crying and a gnashing of teeth, a place of pain and frustration and disappointment, a place that people are going to hate being in. But if you are in Christ, that is not for you. For you, it is the rule and the reign on the perfect, reconditioned earth. And that is the hope that kept the Thessalonians going when they were being persecuted. And that's why Paul gives them that hope. Because when times are hard, you need to remember what's coming. That's why the whole book of Revelation is written. That last book of the Bible is written for a whole lot of churches where people are being crucified, where people are being burnt at stakes, where people are being fed to wild animals in the arena for entertainment. God puts in a book that says... I know these things are happening, but trust me, this is what the last chapter looks like. It's going to be okay in the end. So I just want to finish by just praying over you, over us, the blessing that Paul spoke over the Thessalonians. So now... May the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen. For he who calls you is faithful. Amen.
Thank you, Paul. Um, we're going to spend the next few moments uh, spending some time breaking bread together, and I want to lead us in this over just.